0: It's Saturday, January the 11th, and Chinese state media have reported the first known death from a virus that will later become known as COVID-19. On the front page of the New York Times is news that impeachment articles are to be sent to the Senate, whilst increasing tensions between America and Iran look set to become a major concern. Those stories now feel as though they belong to a different world. Historians in the future may describe the months of January and February as the last moments of a pre-pandemic age. After all, a common refrain heard throughout the West is that COVID-19 has changed everything. Over half a million lives have been lost worldwide and economic damage is just beginning. How can anything possibly be the same again? The life does not operate in the same way as a history textbook. There are no clear boundaries between one year and the next and the path from an event to its impact is complex and unpredictable. Amid the financial crisis of 2008. The euro and also the European Union looked set to break. But it didn't. Greece is still in the euro. Italy and Spain are still members of the EU. But the impact of the financial crash reared its head in another way, one many didn't see coming back in 2008, Brexit. The economic turmoil in the years that followed allowed tensions over immigration and bailout packages to reignite the British Eurosceptic movement. But its success in 2016 was shaped by individual decisions along the way, Cameron's decision to hold a referendum being the most obvious, but small ones too. Douglas Carswell defecting to UKIP, and the heads of Vote Leave failing to oust Dominic Cummings in a failed coup. A larger geopolitical and economic movements also had an impact. Deindustrialisation from the 1980s onwards contributed to a feeling of alienation and a need for change. The path from the event, the financial crash, to one of its impacts, Brexit, was impossible to sketch out in 2008. It was proof of the butterfly effect... ...coined by the scientist Lorenz. Whilst using a complex computer system to predict future weather patterns... ...Lorenz altered one variable from 0.506127 to 0.506. This tiny alteration transformed all predicted weather for the next two months. Lorenz concluded this was proof that small changes can have large consequences. Significant events, financial crises, wars and pandemics... ...do have significant consequences... But it's never as simple as them creating new worlds. If there is a post-pandemic age, it is likely to be shaped by the political environment that witnessed its birth. It may indeed accelerate pre-existing trends. For instance, calls for a larger welfare state had been growing in Britain since the turn of the century. World War II merely accelerated its coming. Right now, it's impossible to know what will happen next. But one of the first pieces of evidence for the political impact of COVID-19 will be the US presidential election in november will the virus accelerate the polarization of american society will it accelerate identity politics or will it mark the end of the trump presidency or rather cement his legacy for increased protectionism will the virus serve as the spark for a course correction for america on the international stage all these questions will only be partly defined by the resulting november and many will be shaped by multiple butterfly effects along the way after all an election campaign itself can be transformed by individual mistakes or moments of triumph. To help answer these questions and to sketch the outlines of the upcoming election, I've been speaking to Greg Swenson of Republican Overseas and Matt sharar the Democratic Mayor of Manassan, Pennsylvania. If COVID-19 is set to accelerate the trends that were present in American politics before the pandemic, then the best place to start is by looking back at the last four years. What are those trends? and what has been the impact of Donald Trump's time as president. I'm Eric Green, a journalist for Shoutout UK, covering the US presidential election. Welcome to this episode in our series of podcasts focusing on the campaign. I hope you enjoy it, and please let us know what you think on our website and on social media. fun and you? Yeah, good, thank you. Yep. Looking back over the last 4 years, how would you yourself describe uh, Trumpism? Has there been an obvious ideology or vision that the president has followed?
1: Yeah, yes, I mean I mean the, the short answer is yes. Um but I also that it's it's better than I expected. Um you know, he's not a he's not a he was never a movement conservative. And didn't really have any, you know, really deliberate political philosophy, but but surprisingly, he governs in a much more conservative way than than we expected.
0: How how, so, how would yeah. you describe that in term in policy terms? You know, is it being well, it, it, protectionism?
1: The, the three, yeah, this. I mean, the philosophy is a whole different thing. You know, the mm-hmm. America first and. and clean, you know, drain the swamp and all that stuff. But in terms of actual policy, I think the three major things were deregulation, tax reform, and the third one is, is appointing constitutionalist judges.
0: Greg Swenson there of Republican Overseas outlining just how conservative the Trump presidency has been. His surprise at this marks, I think, a reflection of how the president has throughout the last four years relied more and more on support from his base of core supporters but did they elect such a traditional conservative and are they going to be disappointed at the gap between Trump's populist rhetoric and the conservative policies he has enacted greg swenson again
1: no i don't i don't think so but but it's it's a great question eric and and i think in the past i would have been very suspicious that that could be the case mm. but he's done a really good job of making a populist case for conservatism you know i mean part of it's draining the swamp and the, the general distrust for the you know, the establishment political order, both Republicans and Democrats. But but by focusing on, you know, by the the populist message is focusing on, you know, what what is it doing for you? You know, what you the people that have sort of been forgotten. So going back to the Obama years, you know, because he was so hostile to the private sector and to job creators, but he had a very favorable Fed. And and because his fiscal policy was so Anti-business and anti-job creator, he he was much more dependent. The economy needed a very accommodative Fed. I mean, yeah, you, you had you know you had um, zero interest rates and massive quantitative easing, and and that's good to keep the capital markets humming, and that's kind of what the ECB is doing now. But if you have accommodative Fed stimulus in the form of bond buying and and zero interest rates without fiscal policy, you know, without pro-growth policies, what you get then is a massive asset inflation, which is good for guys like me, you know, because mm-hmm. if you owned financial assets, stocks, bonds, and property, you did really well in the Obama years. Um, the people that got hosed in the Obama years were, were the workers, you know, the people that you know were were working in, in crappy towns where factories were closing because of, of you know, globalism and trade. Along comes Trump, and he and he adds, you know, a stimulating fiscal policy by reducing the tax burden on companies and job creators, and more, perhaps more importantly, reducing the regulatory burden on on job
0: creators. Has protectionism yeah. and trade barriers been a necessary and vital yeah. part to that?
1: Because yeah, it's also yeah, had negative I mean,
0: effects. You've seen Trump, uh, according to some reports, worried about the agricultural vote. And tariffs impacting farmers. Yeah,
1: yeah there, there's no doubt about that, and I think the president knew that going in, um, and that's why he, you know he, he again as a conservative, I'm usually against these things, right? Mm-hmm. He, I was very nervous about it. Um, my first few appearances after the first tariff that he slapped on China, since I was saying, you know, I don't like tariffs; they're a tax on the consumer, and they never work. And what's funny is, like a lot of things, whenever I've criticized the president, which I do, I'm often quite honest about it, I was wrong on that.
0: If Trump's economic policies have transformed the Republican Party away from their historic position favoring free trade, then what impact have they had on the position of the Democrats? Remember, those workers that Greg Swenson talks about having benefited from protectionism are largely traditional Democratic voters in the Rust Belt. Joe Biden will be desperate to win these back. Here's Matt Sherratt, Democratic Mayor of Manassas.
2: I, I think that we realize in a lot of cases that we can't live in a bubble. Um, I'd like to think that the average American has realized that. But we also have to be realistic that we if, if we're going to participate in a global economy, which I completely feel we should, we also have to keep in mind that we need to address our economic issues at home at the same time. And I think a lot of people are looking at it at, at one or the other. Um, and it's it's kind of become a political football with with both parties because, you know, the Republicans paint globalism as the scary thing and the Democrats are like, no, we need to be more inclusive and we need a robust economy. And I think we're finding that we're not prepared as much economically, like we've relied so heavily on globalization, so I think that there's a happy medium. Like I think that we can have both, but we have to just be responsible about it. And I I don't know where the party is on that, and I I don't think the American public has moved much on that in general. I think that when Trump was elected, he kind of played on everyone's fears about a globalized society. Um, here in Manesson, for example, you know, we, we had a steel mill here um, that the the city was founded on and it went away in 1986, mostly due to free trade and the global economy and jobs moving overseas. And there's still resentment towards that. But I think a lot of people understand the necessity of of having a global economy. But when you have someone like Trump come in and play on people's fears that you know other people are taking your jobs, you're not going to get to work or make money, and you're going to be living in a failed economy. Blah blah blah. That's scaring people into voting for him. And I I'm hoping that people don't fall for that again.
0: If on the economy the verdict is still out over whether protectionism has taken hold of American politics, in terms of foreign policy, Trump has helped create a new consensus when it comes to China, one that is now spreading across the Western
1: world. And so I think one of the other things that, that Trump did well was just expose a lot of the bad things that the Chinese were doing. Chinese stuff, you'll find that Democrats are, are actually rallying behind the same argument. They might yeah. not like to admit it, that they are, are supporting. But, you know, Chuck Schumer three years ago was banging the tables supporting Trump on the tariffs, but a lot of it, a lot of it
0: feels quite.
1: We have been very pro-tariff.
0: Sorry, but a lot of yeah. it feels quite um, reactive. America is reacting to the rise of China, almost yeah. in a desperate. You could say critics I, could say in a desperate attempt to yeah. stop it because it has allowed it to rise uh, I, to I this extent. Right. And some of that blame must be at Trump's door and his foreign policy handling, because a lot of it has been turning uh. the back. On, on the world, what would you say to well, that?
1: Well, I know it's yeah, it's a funny, it's a funny one because on one hand, you're absolutely right. I mean, China had you know, he exposed a lot of these ills and. A lot of people had ignored him and it's not i'm not blaming the obama administration it was, it was george bush it was bill clinton you know mm. this was both parties and republicans as you know are always so pro-business so yeah you know we've always just sort of said yeah let's go 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 let's trade 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 let's do business with china you know if i'm a factory owner i want the cheapest products right the cheapest inputs so so we're all guilty of it but i think what trump did was exploit or at least listen and understand to the people in the Midwest and the, and the Rust Belt that were suffering, you know, these towns everywhere but, you know, the coasts and Chicago were suffering. So he sort of piled on to that. It's not just America anymore, you know, bitching about the Chinese. But
0: why is it then, really, do you think, that the rest of the world gives so uh, little kind of foreign policy credence to Trump? Is it is it because yeah. of his character? Is it the way yeah, he mean, has ruled rather than so. policy? I think it, I,
1: yeah, there's no doubt. Yeah, yeah. His messaging is sometimes challenging. You know, um, look, he's unfiltered. He's really direct. He's kind of a street fighter from Queens. It rubs people the wrong way, and I think I think he definitely could do a better job of of messaging in a more positive way. But but one of the reasons he got elected. Is because he's so blunt and unfiltered, you know like on on one hand, a lot of times believe me i'm you know I'm kind of like a country club republican. I just sometimes I cringe when he when he is unfiltered, but then but then I have to remember that that's one of the reasons people voted for him they, they were It was refreshing the fact that he just was so direct
0: on the international stage, Trump represents the beginning of a reaction against the growth of China, and one that is now taking root in Europe too. But the similarities do not end there. In both Europe and America, political movements built on anger against globalization have taken power. And it is likely that in 10 or 20 years time, the Trump presidency will be compared to such populist movements in Europe. They will be judged on this question. Who managed to have a greater lasting effect on stopping the trend towards a more globalized world?
1: It was very disruptive. And I think a lot of people will look at it and say it was necessary he was a vessel of this this Tea Party rejection of of traditional establishment Republicans because they had to push back against this this generational growth of the state and growth. You know, they called in '16 they called it the swamp. So mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think you'll see a necessarily a continuation of Trumpism. You know, after his you know after this term or or his second term, but I do think it. They'll look back and say it was a necessary correction at the time, and, and it'll force people in both parties to just be a little bit more responsible and not just be you know, so focused on their own political careers. And you know, does he make mistakes and he's too nice to, the, to, the old, you know, to, to Putin and he's too nice to Kim Jong-un and all that stuff? He makes mistakes, but, but he's actually been tougher on Russia. He 's actually been better for the workers American workers, including blacks and hispanics so you know I think people are just going to have to you know look back and say what would, what did he do not what did he say what did he do and then what did he get you know what did he get for the voters for the you know so I think people will be pleased in retrospect, but the, the, while it's happening it's very it's very um, what 's the word I used um, It's uh, disruptive. And with disruption, you get unpleasantness.
0: Greg Swenson of Republican Overseas. So before COVID-19 hit, it was clear the position that America was in. Trump had won the argument over China. There was a shift away from outright support for globalization one the Democrats were playing a significant part in. And through the disruption that caused all of this, polarization and division were growing. Let's see if coronavirus has accelerated or transformed the currents that run through American politics.
2: We're a mess here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: we were we were completely locked down um, until June 5th in my particular county. And we, so we just opened things up and we're still taking precautions, but cases are starting to rise again. So it's looking like we're probably going to go backwards. Um, Well, economically things are worse. Um, Due in large part to the virus, of course, we're seeing that everywhere, I think. Um, The division, it's it's more entrenched but it seems to be that a lot more people are sort of denouncing what Trump is doing which i find interesting especially in the last month or so um i think the the virus has really exacerbated um things and laid things bare in in terms of Trump's ineptitude with handling the the virus and the economy and and all the other things so I, I don't really know. I don't see as much enthusiasm um, as I did in July of, of 2016 for try it. So Do that, you think the virus I, then I, has radically changed people's uh, interpretation on Trump? I think I, I, I do. I think the average person um, sees just how he is. And I, a lot of people saw that from the get go. Um, I've talked to some people that voted for him that said they wouldn't vote for him again. Is that because,
0: do you think, it's cut through? It can't be polarised, you know, everyone sees the impacts of coronavirus in their community, unlike other events, impeachment, the Mueller report,
2: they could all be interpreted in so many different ways. I, I think that's right, um... I mean, the virus is still polarizing to some degree because you have people that still think that it's not real, Um, but it's affected so many people. And um, here in particular, we have a large senior citizen population. So a lot of younger people are concerned and maybe they're not taking the virus seriously for their own personal well-being, but they're taking it seriously because they're afraid for their parents or their grandparents so you see this and the economy affecting people directly and i think that's definitely cutting through
1: but but here's what you know that and you you don't again you don't see this in the mainstream media front page of the mainstream media and also um also anytime you see you know uh, like cnn all the mainstream media outlets they lead everything with cases right now back in march and april they were leading. Every day with deaths, you know, deaths. Well, cases too, but but they love the the, the body count. But you've got now, hospitals
0: in uh, Houston talking about reaching yeah, uh, maximum yeah, points. Yeah. I, I know,
1: I know, in Texas, um, when people were freaking out about capacity, the 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 percentage of ICU beds for Corona was nineteen percent. Now that was a week ago. I'm sure it's gotten worse. There's no doubt that there is a spike, but but. Even in the, even in places where there's increases, it's amazing when you look at the number of cases. But it's driven by two things. One is testing has gone up massively, and so of course, with more testing, you're going to have you know you're going to have more. Um,
0: but the, more pro- cases. the proportion of testing hasn't gone up the same as the proportion of yeah, cases, no, which indicates no, it's, that it's cases true. are increasing.
1: Sure. But but you'll and look and I'm I'm agreeing you, with you in many ways that Republicans and Democrats will look at these things differently. But the, the number as the, the, the number of cases might be going up at a faster pace than the testing, but also because there's you know, herd immunity is being reached, the virus has been out there a long time.
0: Positivity still indicates that coronavirus is spreading and has been allowed to spread. Across the United States, do you think that Trump, overall yeah. as president, has handled the situation well? You know, what what would you say has been yeah. his greatest no, strength think, in this? I th-
1: no, I think I think his messaging was was awkward in March and April. So you know, he, he didn't he didn't win a lot he of friends. I mean, yeah. Andrew Cuomo a really smooth guy. You know, he's he's got a Barack Obama delivery, right? He's smooth. He's calm. He, he had the nice press conferences every day with the powerpoints, and yet. His numbers are, are obscene and, and sending the people back to the, um, to the care homes on purpose at the beginning. Yeah, but behind, could, behind Trump's say. rhetoric
0: and messaging yeah. has still been a policy that in January and February, even March, was playing down the risks of the disease.
1: Yeah,
0: and yeah, then, not, and then since not, it arrived, really. well, in fe- I think it was in yeah. February he talked about you know it being over pretty quickly and not being too much yeah. of a risk. That, that's a substance yeah. issue rather than communications.
1: Right. You, yeah, you, but you have to, you know, you have to balance the, the concerns. With you know, we put the we put the group together, the coronavirus committee. They did the press conferences every day. You have to balance delivering the message with actually getting stuff done, like making sure testing ramped up, which you did. Making sure there are enough ventilators, which we had so many ventilators they had to export them. Uh, you know, so so you have to balance that, but also. Maintain a confidence that will get through this.
0: Whether the trend of polarisation is becoming more entrenched as a result of the pandemic, only the months ahead will tell. Whilst both Greg and Matt agree that coronavirus is a serious problem, there are clear differences between them over where the blame lies. For Matt, he told me that the pandemic has completely turned the election upside down. Six or seven months ago, he said, there was a different conversation entirely. For Joe Biden, COVID-19 has allowed him to attack Trump on lines of competence and leadership. But the pandemic doesn't mean that the problems Democrats encountered in 2016 have simply gone away. The economy is faltering, but there are nerves that if it bounces back strong in time for November, Trump can still win. Matt um,
2: Who knows where we'll be in November, but um, I think the economy was his strong point Um, in his mind anyway. And I think that was the issue that he had planned to run on. And he can't do that now. We have an unprecedented uh, number of unemployment cases. People are furloughed. They're completely out of work. Businesses are shutting down. We can't open back up fully. So I don't know how he can... um, how he can campaign on an economic message unless he is going to campaign by saying vote for me so i can put things back to where they were under hillary clinton the democrats got squeezed
0: on two fronts on the one hand she wasn't left enough for the supporters of bernie sanders and for voters across the rust belt particularly when it came to social and cultural issues she was actually too far to the left how can biden unite these two groups together
2: I think that Biden seems to be willing to listen to Sanders and some some of the people that are farther left on some of the policies to maybe bring him further to maybe center left on some of those issues. Do you think there is a risk that Biden moves too far to the left? I, I think so because um, I think he has to walk on this tightrope because he could alienate some of his more moderate voters but he also needs to gain support of more farther left voters as well. So he he has to walk on this tightrope and try to figure out um, what issues he can move on and what issues he can't move on. And I'm sure it's challenging for him and his team. Um, it's going to take a lot of listening on his part and just gauging where the public is and where his supporters are. Um, And hopefully he can manage to pull it off. But it's going to take some acrobatic work for him.
1: Hillary was a downright hateable candidate, right? There was a lot of voters, if you look at the polls, a lot of voters hated both candidates. So they kind of held their nose and voted for the one that, you know, they hated less, (laughs) if that makes sense, right? But, But Joe Biden's not a hateable guy. So he's actually, in many respects, as far as hate and not hate, he's much better than Hillary. The second thing is Hillary didn't go to Wisconsin, Michigan, or Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. I'm worried that the fact that he's campaigning there when Hillary didn't, and he's not that hateable, uh, that's really problematic, right?
2: And I think Biden needs to do his best at meeting people where they are. Um, as much as possible. One of my critiques about Hillary's campaign in 2016 was that she did not um, go to enough places that she needed to.
0: A clear theme there from Matt and Greg expressing the importance of where exactly each candidate is visiting, something to keep track of as the campaign proceeds. But as we near election day, there is of course that thing called events, or rather breaking news that can derail any carefully planned campaign. The killing of George Floyd by police in Minnesota was one of those such events. It ignited a series of protests and riots that exposed how arguments on race and culture will form an instrumental role in this election. How each candidate responded reflected their election strategy. For Trump, he plans to play on such tensions to further a culture war, thus allowing Biden to position himself as a unifying figure. Something, though, that doesn't come without problems. What about um, some of their policies, such as uh, defunding the police? Well, you know that that seems
2: something that could be taken up by Republicans. Um, that is that is definitely a concern, and I think um, the the people who are advocating for defunding the police need to be clear about why. The general consensus is saying we need to take some of the duties away from the police when it comes to um, psychiatry and psychology and and mental health and, and all those other things that police deal with, with calls. And we need to take some of that funding away and move it to Uh, mental health and and drug addiction help and that sort of thing. Is there space in this election and in the campaign for that kind of complex debate?
0: Is there not a risk that with the way that, you know, Trump tweets and kinds of uh, condenses debate down into very few lines, is there not a risk that the Democrats just end up getting caught in this whole debate and actually that risks
2: losing votes? Um, not if we're like I said earlier. Not if we're clear on the message. Yeah. I think we tend to be. This is this is a case where it's dangerous to be policy heavy because if you get too policy heavy, then people pick and choose um, statements and pieces of that policy that might look bad out of context, and they run with them. Matt Shirada, and now
0: for the final time,
2: Greg. So over that weekend,
0: how can you argue that? Yeah. Um, Trump aimed to unite America. You had the, uh, yeah. you know, you had tear gas being fired at, uh, when as he sure. tried to clear sure. the way to make his way to the church yeah. in Washington, and and the world yeah. watched on, yeah. looking at a pretty it divided America. Gas,
1: way, but <laughs> it wasn't tear gas, by the way. Uh, but the press said it was tear gas, so then it just became truth. You know, it was pepper gas, but that's all right. Um, but you know, it was what a
0: what deliberate started, attempt uh, to clear you know, protesters oh, but, but I through think force. But
1: there's, but there's also but, but what you said about you know being divisive. Orta, it's absolutely true. I mean, what you want from your leaders uh, is is you, you want law and order and you want people to be defended, people's lives and property. So there is a time where you have to say, and by the way, the other interpretation of his comment, which again I thought when I first started it, And the looting starts, the shooting starts, meaning people start shooting each other. You know, that's a bad thing. And so I I don't think that, you know, while he's trying to be unifying at the right time, you do. People were very frustrated that no one was out there defending and standing up for law and order.
0: Thanks very much to Greg Swenson and Matt Scherrer for offering their time to be interviewed for this podcast. And thanks to you as well for listening. Please remember to get in touch and let us know what you thought. We're also interested in hearing from you about the topics you'd like us to cover in the weeks ahead and what parts of the election you are interested in reading or listening about. What I learned speaking to Greg and Matt is that the pandemic so far at least is accelerating the currents that were already present in American politics. Polarization, mistrust of the media and tensions over race and culture. The latter, I think we can expect to become more prominent if Trump's main card, the economy, continues to struggle. But perhaps the biggest impact of the virus has been how it's forced us all to reflect about our lives and for Americans facing an election about their country. A country already transformed by Trump's presidency. Just look at Democratic positions on China and Joe Biden's recent speech advocating the need to buy American. But have these positions been changed by Trump's actions in office or rather through his election? In their time to dwell and reflect, will Americans decide they are happy with their position in the world today? And are they happy with their president? If not, Trump will lose and will be known in history as a man that revealed the anger of many, but who in the end could not deliver. His legacy, though, may be what he revealed rather than what he actually achieved. What comes next is likely to be in response to what he revealed.